Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. Well, thank you, Josh, for that introduction. All right, so um, let's start, get some background on you, if you don't mind. Uh, where were you born and raised? So I was born in Hilo, Hawaii, and I was raised in Hawaii until I was 18. And why on earth did that happen that way? I mean, were you abducted or what? How did, how did this happen? So my parents were living in Madison, Wisconsin. My mom is a uh, English professor and uh, she got a job and they say it was in the middle of uh, Madison winter. She got a job in Hawaii. And so they tell me that my dad turned to her and said, my wife has a job in Hawaii. I'm moving to Hawaii. Would you like to come with me? And so they both flew out to, to Hilo, Hawaii and started their life there in the 70s. Good. And they're still there? They are. They are. They now live on opposite sides of the island. My mom's in Hilo and my dad's actually in South Kohala, which is on the other side. Hold it, hold it. They're no longer married? They are not. Okay. Um, all right. Happily remarried, though. To oh, great, that's, that's great step parents on my on my uh, my side. All right, did being raised in Hawaii produce any different result than if you were raised in Madison, Wisconsin, or whatever? Well, I wouldn't know not having been raised in Madison, Wisconsin. You can think about it. Yeah, um, I think there are a couple things that are interesting about it. I mean, if you live in any place, you kind of do the normal things kids do. You play soccer, you do, you know, whatever. But as you can imagine, Hawaii has a lot of um, different cultures because it's a melting pot. And so uh, what I learned when I moved to the mainland is that there are a lot of things that I thought were sort of what everyone knew and they didn't. So words that you'll use, experiences you'll have. Um, one of the ones I remember is I was cooking dinner um for my now husband and um we were i was making something called shoyu chicken which is uh chicken uh cooked in soy sauce which shoyu is called soy sauce and he i was on the phone and said oh what are you making shoyu chicken i said and I said, or i said shoyu chicken and he said well, what is that or what's in that i said oh it's just shoyu and chicken it's really easy he said, what is that shoyu and like, it, you know, we went back and forth as if it was a, uh, uh, you know, some kind of comedy routine. And he finally said, no, no I mean, what is you? I said, oh, it's soy sauce. Um, so like, it's things like that, that you don't, you know, you don't appreciate until you have someone confront you with, you know, you're the, the one who's, who's uh, got a different experience than, than others. Good. Um, okay, let's get back. Um... When did you decide that you wanted to go to law school? Well, that's a complicated question because I was in mock trial and thinking about the law in high school. But when I went to college, I feel like I tried to do everything I could not to do the law. I uh, was in theater. I was in you know le uh, leadership, uh, student leadership things. I did computer science. I tried everything I could to try th other things that um, maybe I would do instead of the law. 
and I kept being pulled back to it. It kept being really interesting. And I had a professor, Professor Wall, who taught legal courses in the politics department. And um, I just loved them. You know, I just liked uh, learning that. And so um, when I uh, graduated, I went to New York. I became a paralegal and still liked it. And that's when I went to, to law school. And so I feel like it's always, it, was, it was always there, but I really wanted to make sure that it was something I wanted to do before you know, joining law school. Are you glad you did it? I am very glad I did it. I've, I'm one of the people who really enjoys what they do for a living. And it's hard to imagine what else I would be doing. Although I have ideas, you know, just in case, in case it doesn't work out. Okay. All right. Uh, why did you choose Columbia Law School? Well, I was living in New York and I didn't really want to move. As we all know, New York is the center of the universe. So once you've gotten to New York, you have to stay here. But, um, you know, Columbia has a great uh, intellectual property program. And although I wasn't set on it at the time, I knew that was sort of something I was interested in. And, you know, it's, it's Columbia. How do you, how do you say no to Columbia? So I fell in love with the school. I'm still a, a fan, although I will say, you know, Fordham, you know, missed that missed opportunity there. <laughs> now, you realize that I realize you did that for reasons other than the merits. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's okay. Um, okay, you could have done anything. You chose IP law and you chose to be a litigator as opposed to a transactionist, something else. How did that happen? So that is another sort of- And one of the reasons I'm asking all these things is we have a lot of young people just going into this phase of their lives. And it'd be interesting maybe for them to hear what other people thought about and how they got there. So I actually, um, as I said, I was always interested in IP. I had sort of been aware of it. Then I went to law school and didn't take IP in my first um, year. And I went to Kirkland um, for my second summer uh, because it was a great trial firm. I knew I wanted to litigate. I didn't really think transactional was for me, but I really didn't go because of the intellectual property practice. I knew they had one and that I could try it. That wasn't why I went. And then between the time I accepted my summer offer and actually summering, a group of attorneys came over from another firm who were copyright and trademark uh, litigators. And they were litigating what was at that time, the biggest copyright case, at least in my mind of the time, which was the Obama Hope poster case. For those who don't know, that was Shepard Ferry had uh, taken a photograph from the Associated Press and uh, added his own spin on it. And, um, and then uh, public, you know, put it out there and sold you know, t-shirts and posters and all of this other stuff. And uh, this team was representing the Associated Press in that case. And I said, that's super cool. I want to work with, with them. So I reached out and said, you know, to the lead lawyer, Dale Sandali, I said, you know, hey, welcome to Kirkland. I'll be there this summer. Um, I hope you get a chance to work together. And, you know, Dale's no fool. She saw someone who was eager and she clearly, at, you know, had arranged for me to get my first assignment with her group. And I actually worked on that case. And so, you know, I worked on it throughout the whole summer, found it fascinating, loved the team, 
and decided, oh, this is this is what I should be doing. And so I went to Dale and said, you know, I want to do this, you know, and, you know, how do I work with you when I come back? And she said, well, I'm in the IP department. So if you want to do this stuff, you need to be an IP lawyer. So I went back to school. And um, when I came to join Kirkland, I was in the IP department. And importantly, got to continue working on that case because it was still going on when I came back <clears throat> and uh, was there when we won summary judgment, um, which people forget, and uh, that we won, that it was not fair use. And um, now we have the uh, the uh, Goldsmith case, which is up at the Supreme Court, which has a lot of similar hallmarks. Well, so we'll discuss curious... that in a second, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what you're saying is, be proactive. Shape your life or someone else will shape it. Yeah. Shape your shape your life and also, you know, be nice people. Be charming. Say, you know, say, you know, good job on on that. Or I, you know, I hope we get a chance to work together. It's, you know, partly being proactive, but also having the social intelligence to know. Sometimes you just, you know, reach out to your friends or colleagues or people you don't know and say, I'm really interested in what you did. Good, good job with that. Okay, good. Um, all right, bachelor's degree in computer science. How did that happen? Well, I always liked computers. I, I, you know, I technically, I think a millennial, although I, I hate that, I hate that title. You know, I'm like, I, I, there's something called the Xenials, which is supposed to be the Generation X and millennial midway point. And that's what I choose to believe I am. People who uh, remember analog, but grew up with you know, computers and digital stuff. But regardless, I've always been um, fascinated by computers. So um, I was a pro, I programmed when I was a kid and went, you know, took classes in high school. And then when I went to college, um, you know, I studied that. I also studied politics. My, I have a degree in politics and, um, but I loved computer science. I just couldn't imagine being a computer scientist. You know, there's a lot of computer science that's super cool and then there's um own notation which is the speed at which uh computer programs run in mathematical formulae and i just don't that never appealed to me so i had to be a lawyer and work with computer cases as opposed to actually writing the programs myself you find that people let's say a history major computer science uh, or patents Will all approach initially or maybe even long time IP differently? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think everyone has different experiences in their lives and they definitely bring that to it. Um, I think there is some level of, you know, if you're coming to IP from more of a creative arts perspective and versus something that's more uh, commercial or, you know, in the lab, you might have a different perspective on how things are created. That's certainly possible. Yeah, well, what I've found actually when I was dealing with patent people is gravity is a rule and you don't change it. You deal with that. And then they get into the law and doctrine was like gravity. It was, that was it. And we just work around that. And of course I'm a legal realist, so, uh, that was not something I was recommending, but uh, so I thought that at least for some people coming from a patent background in those days, it may have changed. Everything may have changed. You know, when you, when you become 58, uh, 
the world can change around her. All right. Um, well, it's certainly true that copyright, as opposed to patent law, is much messier doctrinally, probably in some ways as a result of the legal realism that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, whereas patents tend to be, other than perhaps in uh, unpatentable subject matter jurisprudence, fairly routinized on the doctrine. Copyright is, you know, all over the place, all over the country, which yeah. makes it more fun in my view. Yeah, sure. And more realistic. Um, uh, okay, do you have, uh, all right, your first assignment as a full-time associate was Modern Family, right? Yes. So there was a lawsuit um, by someone who'd written something called Looney Ben, um, which was a multifamily, multi-ethnic, multi, uh, you know, diverse uh pilot script and he asserted that modern family had stolen his script and totally believed it and fought to the end on it and this case i think is interesting uh for a number of reasons one's because a magistrate judge was involved uh this person was pro se and as you've indicated was actually out of law school uh, all sorts of things that make it probably not the best case to look at for what will happen in the future. But um, there's a magistrate judge on the case, correct? If I can remember right. Yes, sir. All right. And that is, it used to be magistrates and it used to be commissioners way back. And then it was changed to magistrate and then magistrate judge, which is more judicial. Uh, and they, so the question is, and on this is I got, you didn't clerk, did you? I did not. Yeah, well, well that's, I'm sorry, I'm gonna give you a demerit on that, but uh, <laughs> so I clerked in the Southern District Second Circuit, so I, my judge dealt with magistrates a lot. And uh, what I think practitioners don't normally think about it, but, um, Magistrates want to be chosen to work on a case. Two, they don't want to be chosen to work on a case that is just under the rules because it's, you almost can do nothing. So you need to get everyone to agree that you can actually try the case or do this or do summary judgment or do something else. Uh, but if you do that, the magistrate is thrilled, the judge is thrilled, uh, and it's an avenue of your judge is really busy, this or this, or you don't like some of the things she did, or I think practitioners should think more about the idea of using magistrate judges. Uh, and the tendency then is the judge is so thankful. They rarely mess around with a magistrate judge decision. The Second Circuit can do that. Uh, so you already have a very nice beginning um in any case it's just a thought all right um i've had a lot of great experiences with magistrate judges i think the tricky part is the thing you ended on which is you know when you have a magistrate opinion that is appealable to the district court judge you sometimes end up with litigants trying to do the same you know trying to rehash issues and things take longer and that was the case with modern family we had an amazing we had um Magistrate Judge Francis in that case. And he did a great job of sort of managing to 
you know, move through things. But then it went up to the district court judge and up to the second circuit and up to, you know, a rehearing petition and then up to the Supreme Court petition. And I didn't know, I don't know this until I did that case, but you can also file a uh, petition for rehearing of the denial of your cert petition, which this uh, litigant decided to do. So we went all the way, all the way, all the way through every procedural mechanism. When you have a client, the worst thing you can say, boy, the, I'm glad we have this case. It's really interesting. They don't want interesting. They want to win. And the other thing is, why should you win? I'm talking about the plaintiff now. I did something, and they did something only because I did it, not because necessarily took copyrighted material, but without my work, this work would never have been done, and I, I should get some recognition of that, which is probably true on some sort of equitable situation. Um, and what you have is... is in a motion like Ravi's Children's Workshop, or I don't know, some others, where it only happened because this woman did it. But copyrightable, no. And, and so if you have that person for a client, you have to, at the very beginning of that, say, look, okay, yeah, you're right. So why, let's try to settle this thing and, and say equitably, you know, you wouldn't have done it without my clients. So let's work something out rather than fight it out because most courts are then are gonna say, your client's gonna lose just because of the merits. Anyway. Um, it's definitely better to have a meritorious claim before you go to the courts, I agree. And the, the other thing with magistrate judges, you can't use modern family as an example of how many litigations you're gonna have. Most of the situation is nobody, is not enough interested in from either the the judges or the parties to beat it over the head. Um, you know, so what, what happens is you have a litigation. So I lose in a district court. Now I'm the district court judge. What am I, I mean, I lose with the magistrate judge. District court judge, I don't wanna see this thing again. I don't wanna do that. And I wanna thank that person for taking it because magistrate judges don't have to take these things. And almost, no, whatever this guy said, a woman said, fine, we're going to accept it. And that's usually enough. Uh, and it doesn't drag on forever. At least that's my experience. And, and the, so it's something to think about. By the way, how did you get the magistrate judge? So I think in the Southern District at that time, because the plaintiff was a pro se litigant, the judge could uh, would refer it down. So we moved to dismiss. And I think that what happened is the district court judge, knowing this was a pro se litigant and might need to sort of cut through some things, uh, said, why don't the magistrate judge look at it in the first instance? And Judge Francis wrote a great opinion, you know, explaining why everything that was alleged to have been copied was not protectable, either because it was an idea or Senate fair or whatever the the rationale was, and then the state law claims were largely preempted by the Copyright Act. Um, and then, as you say, the district court judge got another chance to look at that and said, you know, this looks fine. This looks right. I agree. And uh, and then it went up to the Second Circuit. Um, so if I'm just a litigant, can I put this idea in the mind of the judge? You know, look, what happens Ladies and gentlemen, sometimes the judge says, look, I'm crazy with work and everything else. I'm not going to be able to get in. Sometimes I say that just to get you to settle. 
but for whatever, then you can say, fine, then would you sign a magistrate judge who's going to be all vim and vigor on this and really go, if you really think you have a good case, that's what you want on it, not a judge who's busy and everything else. So it's something to think about strategically uh, in litigation. That's, um, it is true. And in most courts now, the parties are asked early on, you know, will you both consent to a magistrate? And, you know, if, if neither side, if either side says no, you put in a document saying no, but if you both say yes, then you'll get a magistrate for the full case. I have not had any cases in my career where the whole matter was before a magistrate. Usually discovery, some pretrial matters um, will be before magistrates in particularly busy um, jurisdictions. Um, but I've never had a magistrate deciding uh, summary judgment or, or proceeding over a trial. Yeah, but even if they just they do that, that takes a lot of work away from the judge. And you're going to get, I think you're going to get a decision earlier than if you just left it with the judge. But I could be wrong on that. Okay. Minor family, you have a, a magistrate judge. Um, pro se. Pro se, normally speaking, what happens is the judge's law clerks end up being the lawyers for the pro se person because they have to protect the thing from appeal. Uh, and so pro se, you have to be aware of that and you have to want to get arguing basically to the clerks. Um, but pro se is, all right, if you have a client, I'm trying to think of a way to get it out of pro se and someone could say, okay, uh, I'll do it. I don't know. Well, I don't oh, know. Is the I mean, volunteer lawyers for the arts is a great, you know, oh, yeah, there you uh, go. entity. You know, if you have someone who doesn't have money to afford a lawyer, a lot of people go through that. And a number of the, um, you know, sort of big fair use uh, uh, image rights cases recently have been in some form of pro bono, whether it was through volunteer lawyers for the arts or through um, Columbia had had a program that they were doing some of those cases to, you know, lawyers volunteering their time. So there've been a number of cases where I don't know how many of them are, you, you don't necessarily know what the relationship is, but a lot of the people I talked to have done cases where they're representing, you know, the photographer, for example, pro bono, um, which is a great experience for the lawyers if it's a very complicated fair use. Actually, case. absolutely right. You're you're out there. Let's say again, I'm talking to brand new lawyers and everything out there. You have nothing to do. A pro se case on an interesting legal matter is fantastic. It is you learn, you're able to use this to sell yourself. So it's this is an area that. Uh, you'd want to consider if you're starting out and then anything else. And, it, and it's great. It's, it's good for the system. It's good for everybody. All yeah. right. And if you have people who need help and you can't do it, directing them to an organization like VLA is a good, is a good idea because at least then they'll have some people who can talk to them and give them some early advice, which, you know, a lot of people need. Yep. Now, what is this PLI's IP discussions with Joshua Simmons? I promise it's not, I'm not competing with you, Hugh. Can't, can't compete. Yeah, this is not obvious with Hugh Hansen. And I'm beginning to look, come on. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's trademark infringement there though. Different, different words. Um, 
so PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, and I have been partnering for the last year on a series of um, roundtable discussions with different practitioners, um, in-house counsel, sometimes uh, law professors, so maybe uh, you will be on soon, but on different topics. So we've we started with, we've done repair restrictions, product design, we've done, uh, we just recorded one on preemption, and so we get a group of people on the line and we have them talk about the area of the law. And so they'll chat from their different perspectives. Um, it's usually uh, very civil, although every once in a while people disagree. And as you know, from the Fordham conference, having disagreements that are, um, that are uh, polite can be actually the most interesting conversations of all of them. All right, trademark 2022 guide to 25 jurisdictions. How did, when do you find time to do all this stuff? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I have always liked writing, so I've tried to uh, make time for it. Obviously, part of that, though, is um, in the case of the trademark guide, two things. One, you know, we're editing other people, you know, who are doing the individual surveys. So we put together an introduction to it and discuss what you know, is going on, but there were a number of other authors. And then also you've got great um, associates and junior people who work with us. So that, um, that uh, book, uh, the introduction was uh, written by uh, Dale Sandali, as I mentioned, and myself, but we also had uh, Jennifer Gibbons, who was one of our associates working with us on it. And um, it's great. You know, you get to learn sort of what is going on internationally and try to, you know, get people to share hot topic areas that they may not be thinking about. So we added some questions in the last edition on um, sort of free speech, because in trademarks, that's a big issue in the United States. And I was curious what other jurisdictions were doing um, with trademarks and free speech. So we had, you know, put that question in and then the uh, different authors responded in what their countries would do with, uh, with that kind of uh, a challenge. Obviously in the United States, we'd say Rogers v. Grimaldi or one of our trademark defenses. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I took a quick, I never even heard of it, frankly, but then I saw this and I took a look at it and I think it's fantastic. I'm gonna be actually reading it uh, a lot. Um, in a short amount of time, you get up to speed with a lot of stuff, it's good. Um, all right. Um, AI, do you have any thoughts on what, what's gonna happen with that? So in terms of artificial intelligence, well, I think one thing that we're seeing right now is the least interesting question, which is, is something fully created by an artificial intelligence protectable and everyone seems to be agreeing no. And that's not a very interesting question because there's always a human there. The cases that are going through um, the Copyright Office or the uh, Federal Circuit or where the um, humans have sort of disclaimed, oh, we weren't really involved. I think what's gonna be really interesting is the cases that involve some human interaction um, because I don't think you need that much for there to be protection there. So I think you will have um, some cases over time where AI is seen as a tool, just like any other tool an artist uses um, and it will be protectable. On the other side of that is the question of if you copy other people's works to you to create the AI, what happens? And you know those cases we're litigating um, a couple of them now, 
and um, we'll be seeing what you know how they come out. My personal view, though, is you know when you're copying something to compete with the original, that's a much harder fair use case than if you're copying something to do something completely different. Um, so I think that's going to be a question: Will the courts adopt that rationale or something else? Okay. Um... All right, so uh, Cario v. Prince. Hmm. What's your take on that? Um, my take on that is I'm glad that the Second Circuit cleaned it up in Goldsmith, and I'm hoping that the Supreme Court decides the Second Circuit's reasoning was uh, was correct in Goldsmith. I, you know, I, I know you're a legal realist. I think that case is a great example of a situation where courts seem to be really struggling to get to a result and mm, in some ways, you know, changing the law in unhelpful ways or in confusing ways to get there. Um, and then the fact that they divided, they said 20 of the works in you were fair use, but there are five that might not be, seem to be an, you know, an instruction that you really should settle this case, everybody, so that we can not deal with it again. Well, you know that that case, uh, Debbie Batts, who was a Fordham professor, then went on to the bench. She made yeah, a mistake. Yeah, she made a mistake. And everybody out there, listen. The plaintiff asked for the destruction of the defendant's infringing works. Everyone then starts thinking Nazis, this, 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 this destruction of art. No, you don't do that. You only save that where the person, 15,000 reproductions, which you're never going to be able to track. But otherwise, you just let them go. And then, and, you know, have an injunction which says you can't do this and you can go after them. So strategically, I think the reason that case went to, was because of the destruction of the goods. Now, the... 25 and then they pick five that are not that's three judges saying we're not going to fight this out there's some there's something here something here just let them uh, so what is interesting is how that has been ignored the five cases so you have uh Cario's lawyer or prince's lawyer saying the bottom line is there are not and cannot be any claims of copyright infringement against Mr. Prince Baloney. You got five, court has said five of these might be a copyright infringement. So it's been ignored. And the uh, and, and, and ultimately, I did you look at the five? I have looked at the five. And then and, they're more, they use a lot more of the original photographs than the others. It's very hard to tell though what the different you know, where the line that the Second Circuit was trying to draw is, and I think that's why the court was in some ways cr criticized. I mean, in the um, Seventh Circuit Scani Nation versus Keenitz case, they outright said, you know, we see this carrier decision and we don't think it's good law. I mean, how many times have you seen another a court of appeals call out um, one of their brethren and say? This decision's terrible. We don't want to. We're not going to apply that. I mean, it's usually much more respectful than that. And the Seventh Circuit was really strong on it. And I think that's why when Goldsmith um, and uh, Andy Warhol Foundation made it to the Second Circuit, the judges there said, "Oh, we need to 
clarify. We need to, to smooth this out to try to find something that makes sense between the Rogers and uh, Blanche cases against Coons and this Carrieu case. We have to make some sense of all of that. And that's what I think they were trying to do against the backdrop of how the law had been developing in the, um, in the art world. Well, one of the things, you know, litigating this, and someone cites this Carroll case against you, almost no one mentions, well, the, what, what about the five? But the other thing is, Judge Wallace, he didn't concur in that opinion. He concurred and dissented. And basically, when he went back to the Ninth Circuit, he said he disagreed with it. So that is something that could be used, and no one has used it. So it's... I think you have to be a little more industrious almost on some of these things looking. Um, on the other hand. Oh, I was gonna say to be fair to the litigants, I think it's very hard to raise concurrences or dissents when there is a majority opinion and you're contending with it. I think, you know, if you're up at the second circuit, you've got carry, you kind of have to take it as it is and reminding the Second Circuit panels, even though I agree with you, you know, there are going to be judges who say, well, but you know, there was this concurrence and what about this and that? You in some ways have to take it as it is. And then- No, no, that's where I disagree with you. All right, I'll tell you why. It goes up to the Second Circuit and it's not, oh, that panel did this. I'm going to say, I disagree with that panel. And if the lawyer comes in and says, you know, you're not the only one, Wallace actually said it was junk. Uh, and that's something I can use at least to move the court or, or something else. Um, and I, it's, it's, I think it's much more open and it's not open and shut once, once the panel, especially two. Uh, now this visiting judge from the Ninth Circuit could have just dissented. So what he did is concur and dissent to be nicer, I think, because the concurrence didn't really change what it was doing. Um, he also might have been doing that because if you concur, you're more likely to get edits to the majority opinion. If you're a pure dissent, I, my, my understanding is you have less ability to influence the language. Uh, I think that's right, except that he didn't do a very good job of editing. Uh, <laughs> but a, a big, I mean, legal realist thing is five. They put five out of 20 that there might be, a, or 25 out of that might be a fair use. And as you say, it's not that easy to figure out. That was a set, that, that was a, okay. We're gonna give you something, some judge there, we're gonna give you something. And it can try to work with that idea that it's not as strong as you think. Um, and the other thing about this, I think is, it's a war between academics. They've got an academic community, which would want to put all 30. Yeah, of course. Uh, and then find, have, we should find five more yeah. in, in the back, in the back um, room. And we'll add those to you. When I was in law school, academics, my judge, well, when I first started clerking, I think before you were born, probably, district court judges, go, go and see what the academics are doing this. No one would do that now. Uh, so the academic, it used to be academics had some clout. I don't think academics have much clout with courts. They may have clouts with law review editors and other things, but. And 
there's a battle among, I mean, and I, I think it, I'm not even sure what uh, the amicus brief, or I think the amicus brief in the Supreme Court says, and 60 or 30 or 40 other academics. Um, but that is, you have that war going on, and then you have the, the people that, you know, God has anointed like you and me, uh, who know what really should be done in these copyright cases, uh, who are on the other side. So it's not, and somehow you have to bring that out. Um, there was a dissent in that case, actually, not even mentioned when you see people discussing that case. Now, anyway. Um, One of the things that concerns me about, just to pick up on the academic community point, I, I can't speak to what you know clerks or judges think about the amicus briefs from academics, but what concerns me is, I don't know what goes on in everyone's um, classroom, but I'm hoping that when academics are teaching these courses that they're fair, that they're you know explaining both sides and not just indoctrinating their students. But you know, to the extent that that's not happening, you end up with students who think they know something, and then clerking, and then they start seeing for the first time that there's two sides to a debate, and that can be a big eye-opening experience. And that that concerns me a little bit. Making sure that there's enough freedom of thought in the classroom to make sure that everyone's you know aware that there are um, differences of opinion, unless there are, you know, differences of opinion with you, Hugh, in which case that should not be taught, obviously. Uh, yeah. uh, I actually think um, the academics are just teaching it the way they think it should be. I mean, become an academic, not to care about doctrine and this or this is you, you're there because you have views about IP. Now, now there's a lot of academics don't care about IP, so that, but the ones that do certainly aren't going to be teaching um, that this is okay, I think, because the, the majority right now um, of academics are on the less protection side than on the, the more protection side. Um, you think that will switch back? Do you think that academic, like, because there's such a glut of of you know academics who are IP skeptics or whatever term you want to use that over time that'll switch back because there'll be interest in articles and perspectives that differ or is it an echo chamber and you're only going to hire you know more people who think your way? I know it's a good question. Uh, it's hard to once I've been indoctrinated as a student if I am particularly. Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. We'll see. I would certainly hope that that's the case, but I think it's a, well, we can talk about that. Uh, all right. Hold on. You should reach out to some hiring committees and just let them know you really need some differences of opinion on IP. Hire a lot more pro-copyright professor types. Pretty sure that'll be effective. Um... Let me look. Uh, I have other stuff, but you know, I'm not good with paperwork. What is interesting is Newman uh, was on the panel in uh, what case? And he... Fox versus TVIs. Who? Judge Newman was he? He was on 
we litigated a case at the Second Circuit on fair use, Fox versus TVIs, and Judge Newman was on that panel. I wasn't sure if that was your, what you were referencing. Is that the one where he accused himself? I don't think so. Oh, no, no, no. It was, it was a uh, case, it was right after Google Books, and we were litigating on behalf of Fox against a company that uh, purported to be a media monitoring company, but was actually selling clips of uh, television. And it went up to Judge Jacobs, Judge Newman, and um, a uh, judge sitting in from the Southern District of New York. And uh, what was interesting to me about the panel was Judge Newman had been the main articulant of copyright law at the Second Circuit for many years before Judge Laval's sort of rise to, you know, writing so many copyright fair use opinions. And so we had Judge Newman on the panel, and you know his way of looking at copyright fair use aligned fairly well with what we had argued in our briefs. So it was nice to see him there. Um, and then of course, Judge Jacobs as the senior judge on the, on the uh, panel wrote the opinion for our client, finding it was not fair use. Yeah, uh, I think Newman's fantastic. Uh, and he's getting up there. I, we just found out what is 90 years old. You know, these old people tell me uh, you only get to be, you're only old though when you hit, you know, 90, anytime before that, we're, <laughs> we're all young. We're all young at heart. Um, to your legal, to, oh, go ahead. I'm just trying to look at, he, he, he recused himself. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's why, do you know why he recused himself? I don't, he may have had stock in one of the, you know, as I mentioned, there were a lot of different uh, companies who had been sued by the plaintiff. So he might've had stock in one of them. That's pretty common. Yeah, but usually, you know, that before, after, I think he recused after the oral argument, but all right, it doesn't matter. Anyway, I, I think uh, Newman is fantastic, actually. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. Uh, one other interesting thing to your um, legal realism point of view um, in that Fox versus TVI's case, the Southern District of New York judge was Judge Kaplan, who was sitting on the panel by designation. Oh, yeah. And we were, you know, sort of interested in him because he had been the uh, district court judge in the Kirkwood versus Infinity case, which was at that, you know, was one of our lead cases on appeal. We said, oh, Second Circuit panel, there's this great decision where Judge Kaplan was reversed by the Second Circuit. You know, he had said it was fair use. The Second Circuit said it wasn't. And, you know, you were like, oh, is that his perspective on fair use? You know, is he going to come in and say, oh, yeah, this should be fair use too. And he was the most pro our position, I think, of the panel. He was, he wrote a concurrence saying, you know, I would have said this he was even more not fair use than the panel did. Um, and I think it's because he learned, you know, he had been reversed and said, well, if that's, if that was the law, then that should be the law here. And so he would actually wrote a wonderful concurrence to your point about concurrences about, you know, he would he thinks it's even easier case and should be even less um, likely to be fair use. Well, he considers himself an expert and he's written in uh, two or three cases of which he sort of made new law in a district court. Um, yeah, so, uh, I actually don't see him being, I was wrong, but maybe. Well, let me look at it. Give me, uh, can you send me the site? I'll, sure. write, I'll write to him and see what we can do about this. Um, <laughs> Did you want to talk about Goldsmith? Yeah, all right, speak. 
<laughs> well, you know. I oh, are you kidding? Of course I want to talk about Goldsmith. I mean, that, that shows, that's why I don't want to deal with old people, is that, <laughs> of course, that's the case. Um, yes. I actually thought this brief was fantastic. I liked it a lot. Oh, thank you. The, uh, the Manel, well, I'm talking about Manel Ginsburg and- uh, Oh, how rude. I thought you were talking about my brief. Well, I didn't see your brief. See, that's what happens when there's so much interest on the bottom side. So we filed a brief on behalf of the Association of American Publishers um, on behalf of, of uh, Lynn Goldsmith in the Supreme Court case. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Can you actually send me a link or something to get it? Sure, I'll add that to my homework. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, what did you think of Manel's brief and Jane's brief? I thought it was great. I think, um, you know, it was a brief by professors uh, Ginsburg, uh, Manel, and Balganesh. You know, and, you know, I don't always agree with all of them, but I thought this was a great perspective, historical, doctrinal, Ultimately, and this goes back to your conversation about legal realism, what I'm trying to figure out is why did the Supreme Court take this case to begin with? It had just decided Oracle v. Google. It's now got the Second Circuit opinion saying that's cabin to software, but we're taking this up. Are they taking it up to reverse? Are they taking it up because there's, they think that transformativeness has gotten too messy? Um, or do they think that the Second Circuit panel was wrong and they're going to do another, you know, pro fair use opinion? Um, and so, when you're trying to figure that out, one wonders, you know, do they need the doctrine, or are they already enmeshed in it enough that they're like, okay, we know what we want to do? And so, I'm curious to see sort of what is troubling them when we get to oral argument. That's really going to tell us a lot about where their heads are at. I think. And I'm curious to see what Judge Jackson, um, you know, what, what her perspective will be. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the Supreme Court as it's currently uh, populated, but um, yeah. I think if I'm in the Second Circuit and I agree with, the, if I'm the Supreme Court, I agree with the Second Circuit, I would have denied cert and just said, boom. Uh, no work, everything else. And we know for sure the Second Circuit then is going to be a position which I agree. Uh, the Grand Cert means you have some questions about what the Second Circuit did. And if they had just simply affirmed uh, what the Second Circuit did, I think for lawyers and other people wanting to go the same way, it would have been an easier task. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I think it's, problematic or what they might do. And I'd almost be willing to bet they're gonna reverse a little bit or something. Because there's a lot of work that they didn't have to do if they just wanted to affirm. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that is tricky about the Goldsmith opinion and if the Supreme Court wanted to write a helpful opinion, this is what they could, you know, for Lynn Goldsmith, I think this is what they could do. The Goldsmith opinion is really trying to deal with that Cariou decision that we were talking about earlier. It's trying to figure out, okay, what does Cariou mean if we take it for what it means, you know, put it in its proper position. The Supreme Court is not bound by Cariou or any of the other 
you know, cop pro fair use cases on um, in the Second Circuit or anywhere else. They could be deciding, you know what, you guys were stretching to try to deal with a really weird precedent. Let's smooth that out and give you an actual articulation of how this should work in the art space. And they could still affirm, you know, they could still go back, say, you know, you, you get to the same place, but you have a lot of sort of this cruft created by this prior panel opinion. Let's fix that for you. But I don't know whether they will do that. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Um... Yeah, and I want to and I want to see a brief. By the way, if you can send me, you know, actually, if you could just send me the brief, uh, we'll do that. Uh, all right, so that's it's just good. hard for me to imagine that this is transformative. You know, that's the hard. That's the thing that I find so difficult. If this is transformative, if what you know these Warhol prints look like is transformative, where does that line end? Where is where? What is a derivative work that is not? A transformative yeah absolutely right so i think uh that's what i like and uh, about this thing i said look it's the whole wrong thing you're, you're talking about a derivative work that has precedence and then if you want to screw around with it uh as a derivative work there's fair use but you have to give it its power as a derivative work it legitimately so i think if you uh, believe in statutory construction, derivative work should, you know, should take precedence just because that's in the statute and transformativeness is not. How many people believe in statutory construction? The people who are using it to write their opinions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, we'll see. All right. I think I, we've covered all the things I wanted to cover. Was there anything I missed or we missed? Oh, actually, so Josh. Yes, sir. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Are you going to be doing this? Are you going to do something different or what? I'm going to do this for a while. I mean, this is, we are living in a really interesting time to be an IP litigator. The issues are super complex and fun. It stops being fun. Maybe I'll be maybe I'll be a, an IP professor. That could be that could be fun. Any, you know, any openings at Fordham? I'm just you know, asking for a friend. Uh, you know, uh, if you're interested, I would do more on that. But I think this obviously, <laughs> you're right where you want to be now, and that's where I want you to be. Actually, I don't want to take you out of the fight. Um, it is. It is hard. Sometimes, some days, you kind of go, "Oh gosh," you know. There's a lot. There's a lot to do. Okay. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. I think you've done great work, and I'm, uh, uh, you know, as I said, don't screw up, uh, and I don't think you will. This has been Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen and Joshua Simmons.